Well, once again, uh, like Kevin was saying, we hope everyone had a great Christmas holiday. I know we had an uh, awesome time this past week with you guys during our services, and glad you could be here today. And if you're watching online, uh, Facebook, YouTube, Church Online, glad you're with us uh, also. And I get the opportunity to end our series, Wreck the Halls, today. And as I was preparing for this message, I was just thinking about kind of the reality that it's just funny to think about how much our culture changes, right? Not even saying for the better, for the worse, just how over time so many just kind of different um, focuses and things that we emphasize in our culture today. Just even looking over the past year, things that have kind of changed our day-to-day, how we look at things and, and just what our country has, has focused on. You know, you, you looked since May and we've had an emphasis on social justice and, and equality you know, since the, the passing of George Floyd. And we just went through uh, an interesting, to say the least, election or entertaining, however you want to look at it. Uh, and, and, and with that has brought a lot of disagreement, a lot of division. And a year ago, if you told me that every time I went to Walmart, I would be wearing a mask, I would have thought you were crazy, right? But we're dealing now with COVID, it's kind of changed our culture and, and, and kind of how we live day to day. Even words that now are normal that weren't a year ago, you have quarantine and outbreak and social distancing, things that we don't, wouldn't a year ago think we would be saying those, but now we say them probably every week. And for us, as important as a role as that plays in our lives, as culture affects us, if you're a believer in this room, you can have confidence that no matter what happens in our world, we can have confidence that even though our culture changes, God doesn't. That God never changes. And so we want to look at what that means. And, and the series we've gone through and talked about how Jesus, he was born to wreck religion. Second week, how he was born to wreck us. And this week, how he was born to wreck culture. And to communicate that point, we want to take us to John chapter 4, which is a story that probably a lot of us are familiar with. It's the woman at the well. And to really um, get the most out of this story, there's a, quite a bit of context and, and background to talk about. Are you guys up for it? That's what I like to hear. Awesome. Chapter 4, verse 1. So then, when the Lord, or when Jesus... When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, rather his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again to Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So Jesus, in his ministry, he's traveling, and he's gaining some popularity. And the Pharisees specifically were comparing him to John and his ministry, John the Baptist and, and, and what he's doing, and just from a number standpoint, Jesus seemed to be leading more to be saved, and he was baptizing more people. And John adds kind of his own commentary there and says, well, okay, Jesus wasn't baptizing, his team was. His disciples were the ones actually baptizing. And probably the reason Jesus didn't baptize was because he wanted to prevent any source of, like, pride. Like, okay, well, John baptized me. Oh, well, that's nice, but Jesus baptized me, right? He didn't want that. Just like if you were to get baptized here at Grace... You know, a few of you may kind of compare and say, oh, well, Pastor Tim baptized me. And then someone would come along and say, oh, well, Kevin baptized me. So, you know, that's nice. And then someone would come along and top that and say, well, Pastor Michael baptized me. And just, 
or whatever order you want to put there. But Jesus wanted to prevent that. He wanted to make sure that people weren't prideful in who baptized them, but they were taking the step in obedience after they were saved. And so the Pharisees, they felt threatened by Jesus as he was challenging their authority. So he moved on. And he went from Judea, where Jerusalem was, and he went north to Galilee. And as he was doing that, he passed through the region in between, which was Samaria. And verse 4 is, is kind of where I want to pause for a second. It said that he had to pass through Samaria. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus had no other option, because in fact, a lot of Jews wouldn't even think about traveling through that region. And that was because they wanted to avoid the people there. The normal route for a Jew was actually to go around Samaria to avoid them completely because they didn't want to deal with them. They didn't like them. They wanted to avoid them. So they went the long way and it was worth it for them. It'd be like if, if, if you were traveling or if, or if I was traveling from Fremont to Bellevue. Normally, if you were traveling there, you would pass through Clyde. But you know what? If you are committed to Fremont, you do, we don't go through Clyde. It's bad blood. We try to avoid them Clydes at all costs. Like, we just don't do it. Um, just everything they do makes us angry. We don't like them. We don't want to be associated with them. Everything they do makes us mad. Uh, Clyde won't let Fremont Ross and the SBC because they're afraid to play us in football. Like, all this different stuff. Some awkward laughter there. Um, but th that's silly illustration, but that would, that, that's their mindset. They're going, yeah, we don't like the Samaritans. The Jewish people thought they weren't even worth their time. So they went around them. And it was a longer travel, travel, but it was worth it to them. And that was because the Jews hated the Samaritans. And that kind of tension, that history goes 700 years prior. Actually, in 722 BC, the Assyrians came over and, and, and uh, took over Israel. And when they did that, they didn't just like enslave everyone. They did kind of this population displacement. And so they would move some people, and specifically Samaria. They took uh, Israelites out of Samaria and moved them to different places in the empire. And those people they took out, they were replaced with foreigners from other countries. And so in Samaria, you have kind of this like pluralistic society developing with just, um, you know, their own culture and different religions. And ultimately, those people who came in, they began to worship God, the God of the Old Testament, but they had their own spin on it. Because uh, a few years later, when the Jews came back or were allowed back and they were, you know, able to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem, the Samaritans weren't part of that. And so you have this just bitter rivalry to where the Samaritans and Jewish relationship, it only got worse. The Samaritans, they built their own temple, not in Jerusalem, but on Mount Gerizim. And they completely ignored God's instructions in the Old Testament when it came to worship and religion. And that's because they only held the first five books of the Bible to be true. Anything after that, they kind of just um, changed and, and viewed it however they wanted. So for centuries, they pridefully fought, they hated each other, they avoided each other. The Samaritans were viewed as outcasts, that they should be isolated, that they're really not worthy. Jews would actually be in the temple offering things to God and worshiping him. And they would pray that God would not hear the Samaritans' prayers. 
Like, God, thank you for what you've done for me, but don't save those people up north. Like, they're just not worth it. That, that's a special kind of hate, right? That you are praying that these people would not be saved. Oh, but God saved me because I'm, I'm worth it. This is that tension that Jesus is walking into. This awkward kind of uh, just rivalry that's been for hundreds of years. Jesus, a Jew, is going to speak to a Samaritan person. And so when it says that he had to pass through Samaria, it wasn't because of convenience. It was because he was compelled. Because he had to do the will of God and meet the needs of the people in Samaria. And verse 5 tells us that he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, tired from his journey, was just sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus and his team, they are traveling. They get to Sychar. Uh, and this is just a land uh, or a city near the land where we learn about in Genesis that Jacob purchases and he gave to his son Joseph. And somewhere along the way, he built a well. <laughs> really don't know much about uh, the well. This is the only reference to it in the Bible. But it is about half a mile south of the village. And Jesus, again, it's noon, hottest part of the day. He's exhausted, too tired to go on. And this is where the woman enters the scene. Verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, though you're a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I'm a Samaritan woman? And he adds his own commentary in there again. It says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, going to a well, getting water, carrying it all the way back home is more of an early morning, late evening activity. Like you don't want to do it when it's hot out. You want to do it when it's a little cooler in the day. It's not ideal at this time. So why is this woman going at the hottest part of the day? We're going to see in a little bit that it's most likely because she didn't want to be around anybody else, that she had shame, that she was afraid of being judged by other people for whatever her life consisted of, and so she would rather deal with this hot weather at an inopportune time than to deal with other people. And we'll see why that is soon. But the disciples, they went into town to buy food. Jesus is by himself near this well, and he calls out to the woman and says, hey, can I have a drink? And again, remember all of the tension that Samaritans and Jews have gone through. And him doing this, not only talking to her, just let alone like acknowledging her existence, that's bad enough. But to ask to share a drink is unheard of. He is breaking every social custom in the book at this time. And she can't believe it. Because not only is, is he a Jew and she's a Samaritan, but another strike against her in this culture is that she's a woman. And if you were a woman, men did not speak to you in public. You were ignored. Like you were not valued as you are today. No one really saw you as, um, as equal. And they were ignored. A, a woman's word meant nothing in that culture. And so she is thrown off by like, okay, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, and also you're a man, I'm a woman. Like, what is going on here? And she's 
taking her opportunities to remind him, like, hey, we're different. Like, we shouldn't be interacting. You're you and I'm me. What is going on? Because she knows what the Jews think about Samaritans. She knows that the Jews would view sharing a meal, sharing a drink, sharing bread, like touching anything that a Samaritan touched. The Jews would think of that as, oh, no, you can't share a meal or share a drink with them because then I would become unclean. Then I would be defiled. I don't want to touch anything they touch. Like that is not going to end well for me. And this is a weird illustration, but just hang with me. It'd be like if you went to a restaurant, you're with your family, friends, and before you get to your table, you go to the restroom. You use the bathroom, you're washing your hands, and you see a staff employee or someone that works there at the restaurant use the restroom and leave without washing their hands, okay? You would probably not be feeling great, like, oh, that's gross. How could you do that? That's bad enough. You go back to your table and your waiter or waitress comes to the table and it's the same person you saw in the restroom. And they say, hey, welcome to the restaurant. What can I get you? What would you like? And you'd probably say, uh, I'd like you to quit your job. You know, <laughs> none of us would feel great, right? We'd be like, no, I'm not touching anything you're serving me. You can take the food, drink back, uh, you know, it, no. That is exactly how the Jews would view interacting or sharing anything with the Samaritans. And so she knows that, and she is so thrown off. She says, how can you ask me for a drink? And here's his response, verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. See, Jesus didn't engage in this debate with her. He did not let their differences divide them. He did not let their differences define or divide. He's saying, if you knew who, who you were speaking, you, you, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for a drink instead of the other way around. And instead, he turns the focus to the gift of God. And this gift of God is this living water, and, base, and Jesus is using this to just kind of illustrate a life through the Holy Spirit. The ability to live a life that glorifies God. But she's still thinking, okay, living water. She's still thinking it's real water that he's talking about. So she's skeptical. And we see her response. Verse 11, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. So she's still hesitant. She's going, there's no way that this traveler is greater than Jacob, right? I mean, he dug the well and he, even, he couldn't get this living water. There's, there's no way he is greater than him. And Jesus says, if you drink that water, you're going to be thirsty again. But the water I provide, you will never be thirsty again. And I think we can just take a moment to appreciate how weird this conversation is, right? I mean, you have a random stranger saying, hey, I have water and you'll never be thirsty again. It's kind of odd, right? It'd be like if we were shopping at Kroger or a grocery store. We shop, we check out, we're headed out the door. And as we go outside, we see a homeless person leaning or sitting against the building and he stops you and says, hey, 
That food you bought, you can eat it, but I mean, you're just going to get hungry again. What if I told you I had food and you would never be hungry again? You'd be like, what if I told you I'm calling the police, right? You, we, it, it'd be weird. But this is what she's going through. She's not quite understanding what he is referring to. And she doesn't get that it's not physical water, but it's spiritual contentment, life that he's offering. And what he mentioned isn't something that someone strives or struggles for. It's a gift freely given by God. And so what he's trying to say is if we reject God, he, we are always going to look in the wrong place for satisfaction, for fulfillment. He's saying, okay, yeah, this water, not going to last. Worldly things, that, that sin that you keep going back to, that status that you keep trying to reach, the, the number in your bank account that you're just saying, man, if I can just get here and get comfortable, pay this off, then I'll be good. All those things, not bad, or not all of them are bad, but only Jesus provides. And only Jesus will allow us to be content. And he's trying to get her to understand this. And we're going to see where she looks to the wrong places for contentment. But first, she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw water. She still doesn't understand, but there seems to be genuine desire. She's bought in. She's saying, if I don't have to come out here on a hot day and lug this big old jar, you know, back home, I'm in, okay? We read this and go, wow, man, she's, she's committed. She wants, you know, whatever Jesus is offering. Sweet, she's good. Let's move on. Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't want just a surface level yes. Watch where he steers this conversation. Verse 16. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to, her, said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This which you have said is true. And so Jesus, knowing that she doesn't have a husband, he says, yeah, okay, well, I'll give you this living water, but first go and get your husband and come back. I, I don't have a husband. Yeah, you, you're right in saying that. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and now you're not married to the guy that you're sleeping with. And at first glance, I don't know about anybody else, but it seems like this is just a really insensitive kind of jerk move by Jesus, if we're being honest, just at first glance. It seems like why is he pushing this issue in her past that he knows is kind of a soft spot for her, he knows brings her shame and guilt and she's still suffering the impacts of today. She's had five ex-husbands. So, and we're not told whether they ended in death or divorce. And if all of them died, you can imagine why this current guy doesn't want to get married. He's going, I'm not being number six. But most likely, they ended in divorce. And she is living outside of any cultural or religious standards of that day. Five failed marriages was unthinkable in the first century. And so he's not just needlessly pressing this issue. This is a necessary step exposing the heart of the issue, which is sin. And salvation always involves us turning from sin, recognizing sin for what it is. It's the reason that Jesus died, because we were separated from him. There's nothing that I can do to earn my way to kind of mend that bridge 
God's perfect, I'm not. And so Jesus had to pay that price and pay that penalty. And it's not that once we become a, a, a Christian, we just stop sinning. But it's a change of perception about it. We realize what it is. We realize the severity of it. And so we turn from it. And to receive this living water that Jesus is referring to, you have to recognize sin for what it is, the reason that Christ had to die. And so like this woman, we have to recognize our sin and also recognize who can fix it. I mean, Jesus, he knew everything about her, right? He knew her pain. He knew her past. He knew her wounds. He knew what she was feeling. He knew her situation. It's because he created her. Jesus knew her way before she was ever born. Jesus knew this event was going to happen way, in the, way before anything you know, uh, that we read about in John 4. He knows her. He knows her sin. He knows the severity of the, the wrong mistakes that she's made in the past, but he still loves her. And he doesn't love some like future version of her to where, you know what, once you get yourself cleaned up, once you um, break up with that guy, once you kind of clean yourself, make some better choices in life, then we can talk about, no, Jesus loves her. In her sin, he's always loved her and he's showing that. And it's no different with us, that it doesn't matter where we are in life, it doesn't matter what our past consists of, Jesus will push through any and every boundary to communicate to you that only a life centered on him allows us to be content. And so Jesus tells her these things, and obviously she is just amazed. And here's how she responds. Verse 19, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And notice what she does. She doesn't continue talking about her marriage issues and kind of her failures there. Verse 20, she changes the subject pretty quick. She says, if I can find my notes. Okay. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and yet you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one must worship. Jesus said to her, believe me, woman, that a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming and even now has arrived when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So she doesn't continue with this husband marriage talk. She changes the subject pretty quick. She's embarrassed. She is shocked by Jesus' accurate analysis of her life. And so she changes the discussion to something she's a little more comfortable with. And so she brings up religion, theology. And probably the most important distinction between Jews and Samaritans, which was where they worshipped. She said, okay, well, we worship here, you worship there. What's kind of the right answer? And Jesus, he doesn't fully bite, but he does answer her. And Jesus makes it clear that the place is irrelevant. That the place is irrelevant and that worship is not primarily physical, but it says God is spirit. So worship is primarily spiritual. That it's not just about the motions you do, the activities, the things that you do to earn God's favor. It's not about being in the right church. It's not about being in the right temple. 
that there, an hour has come, even now, that you will be able to worship God 24 hours a day. Jesus is saying that everything you do will be an activity that you are able to set aside for the glory of God. And so he's saying to worship is to worship in spirit and truth. And spirit here um, doesn't necessarily refer to the Holy Spirit, but it's an attitude of our heart. Acknowledging who God is and his sovereignty and control over our lives. Spirit and truth. And truth here is just what relates to reality, what God has revealed about himself. Honest, biblically centered worship. So in spirit and truth. And what I love about how Jesus responds is that he embraces how most people view religion. In his response, he, he tells us the difference between how most people think you get to God and the gospel. That most people would say religion or even Christianity is just you do a bunch of good things, you try to be a good person, and hopefully you do this, that, and the other, and you can work your way to forgiveness, to eternal life, all these things. And that is not the message of the Bible at all. Jesus says the gospel, being a Christian, is understanding that God has reached down to us. That's why we celebrate Christmas, because it is God with us. Knowing that we can never do anything to earn that, it is only by acknowledging that I fall short, acknowledging my sin, but believing that Jesus died for that sin, and he is sufficient, and I've chosen to follow him. That is what Jesus is trying to get her to understand. He's, he's saying that a time is coming, even now, an hour has come, that was already present, in a sense that Jesus was there. The Messiah was on the scene, and he's saying his followers could begin to worship in spirit and truth. And so he answers, and her final, uh, kind of final phrase, she says, I know that Messiah is coming, verse 25, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. So in her mind, this conversation Basically over. She's saying, look, you have your views. We have ours. There's no way to know what's really true. So here's what we're going to do. What, the Messiah is coming. When he gets here, he'll decide and kind of put all this bickering and all of this confusion. He'll, just, he'll make it known and he'll tell us what's really true. So we can just wait for him. And Jesus is like, funny you should mention that. That Messiah that you're waiting for. Verse 26 says, I am he, the one speaking to you. That sentence, that direct just announcement, the Samaritans and Jews both have been waiting centuries to hear the Son of God say that. They've been waiting for the Messiah to be there and to come to save them. And who's the first one to hear it? Who's the first one to kind of get that direct revelation of saying, yeah, I'm the Messiah? It's not a religious, like royal, you know, elitist person. It's a Samaritan, a woman, an adulterer, someone with just an inconsistent past. That's who God chose to reveal himself to. And we're not going to read it, but we see uh, as the chapter goes on, the disciples come back from the town, they bought some food, and they don't verbally say it, but in their minds they see the conversation and go, why is Jesus talking to a woman? Like even his own disciples still are kind of caught in this cultural mindset of going, well, that's not right. 
And, and, and that woman, she leaves the conversation, runs back to her town and tells everybody. She tells the whole town, hey, this is Jesus, this is what happened. I met him. He told me everything about my past. He is the Messiah. And they didn't just take her word for it. They went to see Jesus themselves. And we see that they come to their conclusion because of her story, because of her testimony, that, hey, we've, we've heard or we've seen for ourselves and we know that this one truly is the Savior of the world. And we see with the people in the town and the woman at the well, we see an amazing story of what it looks like to encounter Jesus. I mean, think about how she came to the well versus how she left, right? I mean, just think about it. She came alone, embarrassed, scarred, fearful of judgment from other people, only thinking about mundane things like, okay, I have to get the water, uh, I got to avoid all these people, so I'm going to go at this time, and thinking about the only life that she has ever known. But she left knowing Jesus, and he had given her the desire and ability to live a life that she had never dreamed of. And no matter how hard she tried to remind him of their differences, to remind him that, hey, you're you and I'm me and this really you know, shouldn't happen, Jesus wasn't buying it. And we see in the story, just like we've talked about you know, through our series, Jesus wrecked a few things. He wrecked her cultural racism. That Jesus didn't care whether she was from a certain place, a certain region. He didn't care what her family tree looked like. He didn't care what group she belonged to. Jesus wrecked her uh, cultural you know, gender inequality. There's, again, women during that time were not respected. He didn't care about that. He knew that every woman, every man is made in the image of God, and all of us have the opportunity to be saved, loved, and known by God. And just like we talked about in week one, he wrecked her religion. That it's not about a temple. It's not about where you worship. It's not about what just physical actions that you do to think that you can get closer to God, her focus was shifted to worshiping God, not a place, and replacing all of those with his truth. And so for us, knowing whatever our world throws at us, no matter which way our culture leans, no matter what new ideas uh, come up and, and kind of different ways that our society views, you know, maybe truth is a little too offensive or whatever it is, we can always fall back on God's word, the only ageless standard of truth. And that's why just for me personally, not speaking as a staff member, but speaking as someone who has grown up here since elementary school, and so this is my home church, I've grown up here, and, and knowing this reality that culture doesn't define our truth, but God does and he has defined it, Knowing that reality personally only makes me more grateful for grace. Knowing that we're not a church that changes for the times. Knowing that we have always asked the question, what does the Bible say? It's not about what the culture says. It's about what God has already revealed about himself. And again, hearing so many churches changing and adapting to just what the culture is doing I think we're 
pretty lucky to have the pastors, the staff, the elders that we have, and it makes it easier for us to do the same. And I'll, I'll, I'll end with uh, just one question. Is anyone glad 2020 is coming to an end? Anybody? Yeah. I figure a few, a few of us might. Some of us may, uh, may have not had the best year. And obviously a new year is always an opportunity to kind of reflect and, and kind of map out the blueprint or hopefully for 2021. And a lot of us are probably thinking, well, there's, we can only go up from here, right? But a lot of us in this room or watching online, a lot of us, our year maybe has been filled with discouragement or fear, anxiety, maybe even failure. Let me just remind you, that is exactly where this woman was at. That she came to this well discouraged, unfulfilled, dismissed by her society, getting beat down by life and her circumstances. Their culture was saying, yeah, just ignore her. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. She's an adulterer. Look at her past. But that is exactly where Jesus met her. And her life was changed after that conversation and after her encountering Jesus. And that's the same thing we want for every single person in this room. And so if you're sitting here going, I've never really made that step, or maybe you have questions, we would love to help and talk to you about making the best decision that you can ever make. That Jesus died for us, then that he is not defined by time or culture or anything else, but he decides what truth is. And so if you just want to ask questions or talk about it, we have room one in the back of the room after the service that you can grab a pastor and just talk to us about that. Uh, or if you're uh, watching online and, um, you know, you can fill out one of those connect cards and just ask to speak with a pastor. Again, we want to help you know Jesus. If you could, let's uh, stand as we pray and, and close out our service. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for allowing us to be here and worship you. And God, we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. I pray that if there's anyone watching, there's anyone in this room that has not made that decision, God, that you would convict them and just show the necessity, our need for you, a Savior. And God, it should bring us just so much comfort that you define truth, that if we're ever wondering what's right, what's wrong, God, we have your word to fall back on. Our culture doesn't define it. Our world doesn't define it. God, you do. And it's because you are unchanging. God, you are consistent. You are constant. And we thank you for just making yourself known to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.